0: All right, welcome everyone to this episode of the Artist of Motion podcast. Today's episode features Mr. Michael Miller from Pennsylvania, USA. Mr. Miller is an internationally traveled self defense instructor who spent significant volume of his training in the American Kempo system. He was also an undefeated amateur boxer. He's a family man, he's an author, and he's on the line with us today. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me, my friend.
0: I'm looking forward to this one. So, I kind of gave everybody just a quick nutshell dump on uh, who you are, but I want you to really, you know, bring that out in your own voice. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you give us your background and, you know, where'd you start, where'd you train, where you are today.
1: Okay, yeah, no problem. Okay, so um, I actually started it, it, my martial arts training actually started when, uh, oh, geez, we're, it was back in, uh, it would have been the late, or I'm sorry, mid '80s, and I actually took. White crane kung fu, but I took only one lesson because what happened was I showed up. It, one of my best friends, well, actually, he was my best friend back then. Um, he was taking white crane kung fu, and he was an avid Bruce Lee fan, and I was an avid Chuck Norris fan. And uh, we both loved martial arts. We watched martial arts movies all the time together. And, and uh, when I found out that he was taking white crane kung fu from a local uh, kung fu instructor, uh, and it was a female instructor who taught out of her house. So it wasn't a, um, legit business. It was just, she, you know, she took Kung Fu and, and she had a black sash and she taught Kung Fu. So, uh, I went to his class with him one time as a special guest. I took one class under her and she ended up, uh, you know, we, we were going back for the next week and she was gone. Like she sold her house moved out of town. so I had one lesson. And then if you fast forward a few years, um, uh, it was late 1990, right before Mr. Parker passed away, was when I started my Kempo training. And I had no clue about the differences in martial arts, to be honest with you, the differences in styles. I had no, no idea. Um, I'm a young kid. I was in 1990, I was 10 years old. And I, uh, I had no clue. I, all I knew was I wanted to be like Chuck Norris. And, and I, you know, I, I used to watch movies all the time. I used to mimic everything he did. And I would in front of the TV and thinking I was a tough guy, you know? And um, well, then when I started my, my Kempo training, I didn't know the difference. And I had to go out of town because in my town, I live in Bradford, Pennsylvania. It's a small town. I mean, it's, our, our population is like 9,000 people. And uh, in my county, which is uh, McKean County, uh, we have about 47,000 people in my entire county. So, I mean, we're, so Bradford's not a real big place. So I had to travel a little a little out of town to take a um, a martial art, but I really wanted to do it. Well, it ended up that I was taking a Kempo um, system, and it wasn't American Kempo. It wasn't Ed Parker's system. It was actually an offshoot of an offshoot of Ed Parker's system. Um, The guy, uh, the instructor's name was Ed Hutchison. Ed Hutchison was a direct student under JT Will. JT Will was originally a Tracy guy who converted to the Ed Parker system under Ed Parker directly. Um, JT Will was a professional fighter. Ed Hutchison was a professional boxer. So I basically grew up in a fighting school um we didn't do forms hardly. Uh, we did short form 1 or at least a version of it uh and and uh, long form 1 short form 2 and long form 2 that that was basically the only forms we did at that time as I was going up but again i didn't know the difference i did i had no clue you know i'm i'm 10 11 12 years old taking this class and uh but i grew up uh because jt will was a pro professional fighter and ed hutchison was a pro professional boxer we, we sparred a lot. That was kind of like the main thing we did. And we did techniques, self-defense techniques, um, but we didn't really do much of anything else. And we did drills, of course, but um, but anyway, I did that for until I became a third-degree black belt and I went to college. When I went to college, um, I went to college in my hometown of Bradford, PA, uh, University of Pittsburgh at Bradford. It's a branch campus, obviously, of the University of Pittsburgh. And when I went to college, I was a third degree black belt, and I'm like, well, well, I need to, uh, I need to stay active. I don't want to lose what I know. I don't want to lose my skill levels. Um, so when I went to college, I thought I'm gonna, I'm gonna start teaching, just on the side, like in the gym. So I, I actually hand drew a flyer. And boy, it looked like a stinking third grader drew it. But I hand drew this flyer. Uh, I, I drew a, a picture of a, a guy doing a jump kick. Um, and then I just put, want to learn karate with a question mark. And I said, um, call me, here's my number, blah, blah, blah. Well, I ended up getting like five or six students. And and uh, the only reason I did it, it wasn't to make money; it was to keep me active. So I started teaching these people in the in the gym at the you know the University of Pittsburgh at Bradford. And uh, during that time, I'm teaching, and I created uh, a, a a group. It was basically a club, uh, which was the the you know the the university had a bunch of clubs, and they had like club night where people you would set up a table and people would come in and you'd try to get them to join your club well i created the uh, martial arts club because i wanted to see if there was anybody interested in learning and i wanted to see if there was uh any any other martial artists in the school and turn come you know it turns out that there were a handful of uh black belts from other cities and other states that were going there so it turned out pretty good but anyway um then I started boxing while I was in college and because I'm like, you know, I was a wrestler. Uh, I started wrestling in fifth grade. I wrestled all the way through school. Um, My intentions were to wrestle for uh, in college, but I wasn't good enough to get a scholarship because my, my intentions were to wrestle for Clarion university. And um, I wanted to go to Clarion, which I almost went to Clarion, but I would have had to been a walk on wrestler.
0: Yeah, that's not an easy school to get into either.
1: No, it's not, and and um, it was more expensive. And in my mind, I was like, okay, I wanted to go to Clarion. That was my goal. I because I, I wrestled districts there, uh, and I wrestled uh, sectionals there a few times, um, and and I loved the school, and and I was that was the school I wanted to go to. But then I got to thinking, okay, it's a lot of money. I'm not getting a scholarship. And then I have a college right in my hometown. So I could actually commute, you know, live at home with my mom and go to school. And I could, I could work, make money on top of that. So what I ended up doing was, uh, I, I ended up being a wrestling coach. Like I went to Pitt and, and Pitt Bradford and, I was a wrestling coach for junior high and it, it, for four years and it was a lot of fun. But anyway, to, to, as far as martial arts goes, I don't want to kind of veer off too much here, but as far as uh, martial arts goes, you know, I, uh, I was a boxer in college and, and I, and I fought and competed and did pretty well and, and, and I enjoyed it, but it, it just wasn't really big around my town. So it got to a point where I, I had three fights canceled and I was, I was working my butt off. I was training extremely hard, and it, it just became frustrating. So then I decided I'm gonna fight in Golden Gloves, uh, which uh, they had Golden Gloves in Erie, PA, and they had Golden Gloves in Pittsburgh, PA. And uh, then my manager, who was supposed to go with me, uh, his mom, the night before we were supposed to go, his mom got sent to the hospital. She had a serious condition, almost died. So I didn't get to fight golden gloves. So it just basically told me, all right, I'm just going to quit fighting, quit competing and just move forward with my life. And that's what happened. But as far as martial arts goes, so we fast forward a little bit, I'm teaching. And in my mind, I got to a point where um, I need an instructor, you know, I mean, I don't have an instructor. So I did a lot of research. And and when I found out about American Kempo, when I, when I, Learned about the differences between, them, you know, the, the Kempo I was teaching, which Ed Hutchison called it Dragon Kempo. Um, I didn't know the difference. I didn't know anything. Well, um, I wanted American Kempo once I found out about Mr. Parker. And I watched, obviously, I watched The Perfect Weapon with Jeff Speakman. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to I do what Jeff Speakman does. So I got a hold of Larry Tatum. And, um, Larry's in California and I'm in PA. So it wasn't logical for me to train with him, um, on the floor. But what, what happened was for seven years, we had phone conversations. We had email conversations. Uh, I bought his, he had the Panther productions videos back in the day and I bought those videos and I worked on that and worked on his stuff there. And basically that kind of, uh, that kind of um molded me originally into an American Kempo student, I guess you'd say. Now I never got ranked from them. I never wanted rank from them. That that's not my thing, but um, I just wanted to convert over to the American Kempo system and and I had no logical way to do that because there was nobody near me um, who was an American Kempo instructor. Well after about seven years of of basically being mentored by Larry Tatum And let me just, let me just mention this. I never trained with him on the floor. Um, You know, I don't want to mislead anybody. Uh, I never trained with him on the floor. I just, it was all phone conversation, email conversation, uh, and his videos, that's it. And then uh, I finally got to a point, it was in 2006, where I was doing well for myself. I was running a full-time school. I was uh, uh, when I when I got out of college. I my 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 college degrees in writing. I had a major in writing and a minor in sociology. Well, when I got out of school, I became a behavioral health specialist, basically, um, and a mental health um, counselor. And I was in the mental health field for a long time. And I worked for what we call in our town children and youth services, which in most places they call it child protective services, where you deal with child abuse and neglect. And I was a caseworker for three years um, as I was running my full-time studio, martial arts studio. And so I got to a point where, okay, I can actually travel now. I can afford to travel. I can afford to get, be on the floor with somebody. And uh, Tom Bleeker and Joe Hyams had written um, the journey, the original journey. And I read the book, I bought the book, read the book. And, and I was basing, I want one of these people to be my instructor. So I, you know, I emailed most of them, um, you know, Huck Plantis, uh Dave Hebler, Reiner Schulte, uh, Mike Pick, Sean Kelly, all these guys. And and the first person to get back to me was Sean Kelly. So um, we had a we had a great. He told me to call him. We had a great conversation, and this was like a, this was in uh, June two thousand six. And needless to say, make a long story short, he told me that he would accept me as a personal student if I was willing to do so. So I told him, let me let me you know let me uh, get back to you. Because I just wanted to see if anybody else would get back to me, and and I wanted to weigh out my options. Well, needless to say, I waited about three or four days, and and the only person out of the seven or eight people I contacted to get a hold of me was Sean Kelly, and he got a hold of me like an hour later. So, in my opinion, I, I, that meant a lot to me. So I called him back up and said I would accept his offer. And um, and I became a student under him in uh, June 2006. The first time I trained with him on the floor was November 2006, and we were—I was under him for 12 years. And all uh, what I can say about that, and we're and we're still good friends and everything. Um, what I can say about the time I was with Mr. Kelly was, he is the one that opened the most doors for me in the american tempo system by far um i started training under joe lewis and i started training under bill wallace because of sean kelly i i met mike pick i met dave hebler i met reiner Schulte, i met uh uh all these other people um because of him but jeff speakman i trained with jeff once and that was at sean kelly's camp so um what I can say about Mr. Kelly is without him, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I'm at today. And uh, it just so happened that we both were kind of on different paths. After being with him for 12 years, we, we were on different paths in our lives and we just mutually decided to move to move on. And uh, which was 2016, I believe is when um, we moved on. But, uh, but again, we're still friends. I still respect him greatly. Um, as far as that goes, as far as what he's done for me and what he's taught me. And then after that, um, I joined the International Brotherhood of Kempo as, as an instructor, and, and uh, that was founded by uh, Sabora Chan and Dan Meck. And uh, we, there's a lot of – there's like 12 of us who are instructors. Uh, you got uh, Angelo Collado and uh, you know Sabora Chan, Dan Meck, Mark Lawler, Brian Saul, um, you've got, uh, Mark, uh, Monaser Noir, we call him Monty. Uh, you know, we've got, uh, Steve Dan Stewart Donafro. from Canada, Dan Donfro. Yep. Dan Donfro. Uh, you know, who else we got here? I mean, we got, a, I mean, there's like 12 of us all together. Oh, Lorenzo, uh, from Spain. I think he's from Spain. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many, there's so many, uh, there's like 12 of us. But when I joined them, when I joined them, there was only like seven or eight of us. And then after, after I joined them in 2000, actually, I think it was 2017 when I joined them as an instructor, um, there was seven or eight instructors. And then a few more came on after that. But, uh, but we have, you know, David Gigliotti another one. Um, and, uh, but uh, good people. You know, I the reason I joined them is because the it, it's not an organization for rank. It's not an organization uh for politics. It's just a bunch of good people training together and teaching together. And that's why I I really love the International Brotherhood of Kempo and 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 we're all good good friends, good people, and we 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 enjoy it. So after I joined the International Brotherhood of Kempo, I've been teaching there for about four years now uh, for them. And then um, back when I started training under uh, Mr. Kelly, I, uh, I basically got grandfathered into training under uh, Grandmaster Mike Pick, uh, Grandmaster Dave Hebbler, and then uh, Master Ryder Schulte, who's now a Grandmaster. Um, and I, le- I trained a lot with all those guys for years and then uh dave hebler kind of went his own way because i was a part of the CKS and and dave hebler went his own way so it was basically me and mr kelly and mr pick and mr Schulty. and then uh and then he, fast forward years later i uh, i was i've been friends with hebler for years and i just decided i took i took when i left mr kelly or when we parted ways um I decided I don't want an instructor for a little while because I kind of want to weigh out my options and figure out what I want, you know, and, and, and who, who I trust to be an instructor. So, uh, Dave and I have been great friends. We talk all the time. I actually will talk about this, but I actually wrote his book for him. Um, uh, co-authored it, uh, for him, the Elvis experience it's called, but we'll talk about that later. But, um, but, uh, Finally, I was like, I called Dave up and I said, Hey, you know, I've thought about it for over it was about about a year and a half, two years. And I asked him if I told him I'd be honored to be a direct student under him if he would accept me, which I knew he would, but um, so I became a student under Dave Hebler. And so that's who I'm under now. Um, and uh, but that's basically I know it was kind of long, but I guess it's the shortened version of my Kempo journey, I guess you'd say.
0: Okay. And then what you mentioned you had studied some other things along the way too. Just for context, what else have you studied besides the American Kempo flavors?
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, other than, uh, I already talked about boxing. I already talked about wrestling. But other than that, uh, I, I studied Joe Lewis fighting systems directly under Joe Lewis. I was, I became a student under him in 2000 and what was it? 2008, I became a student under Joe Lewis in 2008 under Joe Lewis Fighting Systems. He died in 2012, so I was a student for the last four years of his life, basically. Um, And I've studied under Bill Wallace, Bill Wallace uh, uh, Superfoot Systems, he calls it. Um, And then I studied Modern Arnis, I study that under Datu Tim Hartman, who's from Buffalo. Buffalo's an hour and a half away from me. So um, I've done modern Arnis under him. Um, I did do uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and um, under four different lineages, basically. Uh, Let's see, what else? That's pretty much that, you know, I don't want to count the stuff that I did for like two weeks or that I did for a month or whatever, but the stuff that I'm mostly versed in, and I don't consider myself, by the way, I don't consider myself this, this stud in jujitsu, but I have had probably six years altogether of four different lineages of jujitsu training um, I know the basics. I understand the, you know, I understand the positions, all, you know, all the, the you know, the guard, the half guard, the side mount, uh, full mount, and all that stuff. I understand the basic, uh, basic uh, submissions, you know, I understand all that stuff. But if I were to roll, I haven't rolled in a little while. It's probably, been, well, I say a little while, it's probably been three years since I've actively rolled. Um, so if I were to roll against some stud in jujitsu, I'd have some trouble, that's for sure. But um, but anyway, so jujitsu, boxing, wrestling, modern arnis, Joe Lewis fighting systems. Uh, I've done some Krav Maga, but that's just basically watered down kempo. Basically, uh, nothing against it. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying, um, I, I actually like it. You know, it's basically straight to the point stuff: knees, elbows. Palms, punches, you know, kicks, stuff like that. I did a little bit of judo training, uh, but uh, that's that's pretty much it. I don't include, I don't count. I did do White Crane Kung Fu. I told you the the first girl that I was under was. Uh, I did one class with her. Well, I failed to mention that I it, when I was a third degree black belt, right while I was in college, I took a, um, I took White Crane Kung Fu in olean new york which is only 20 minutes away from me um under a guy named uh, sifu red sarber and he's a he's a world-renowned white crane kung fu guy who happened to be in olean for a while i trained with him for nine months um but you know i don't really want to count that stuff because i don't really use that stuff you know um as far as the kung fu goes i mean kempo is my main deal yeah, that's fair. Just, just
0: establishing context for, you know, what have you trained in and, you know, the more things that you train in, it's like learning different languages or learning different subjects in school. It just provides context and perspective for the choices that you
1: make. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, cause there, you know, there's things that maybe you take a, a weekend seminar in it, you know, and it's like, well, now I kind of have an idea of the way they look at things, you know, and and that's pretty much where I'm at. As far as what have I done extensively, other than American Kempo, in all honesty, it would be boxing, wrestling, uh, jujitsu, and um, Joe Lewis fighting systems uh, and, and modern art, I guess. But that's about it as far as what I've done to be credible, you know, for like if I were to put it on a resume. You know, to be credible, that's basically what it is. But I, I firmly believe in cross training to get different perspectives and to understand things. You know.
0: Totally understand. That's that's more for our listening audience. We we go around uh, as of date of airing right now. We're in 37 countries, which is still mind blowing to me. But you know, there's people out there that have only ever taken one style for you know 10 years, 20 years, whatever. And that's fantastic mm-hmm. because it, I love the dedication. It just—it's missing that perspective that you get from looking at different points of view, and I have to call in a a tie-in there. You, you said uh, mentioned earlier your minor was or your major was in writing, but your minor was in sociology. Sociology strikes yeah. me very much as just learning how to understand how everybody else is thinking, right, or how everybody else is processing information.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So it's the same thing as cross-training in martial arts. You know, learning those associations and understanding how other styles look at things, other people who trained in other styles think about solving the same problems we're solving.
1: Yes, absolutely, and 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 it's basically like, uh, you know, uh, in part of part of the sociology minor, I almost double majored. I was only three credits short of double majoring, but um, part of sociology is you have to take psychology, and basically psychology is the the way humans. It, it's all about the way humans think and uh, about human behavior uh, as as an individual, where sociology is more about group behavior and how gr- groups interact and, 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 and so on and so forth. And um, that's part of it. That's not the whole deal, but, but you're absolutely right with that as far as uh, as far as what you stated there is, um, with all the different styles and stuff. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So I have to bring that to the forefront. It's pretty easy to see how you with a major in writing, you came into you know being involved in writing books and whatnot, but I'm going to leave that for a second here. Being that you've had mm-hmm. so much cross lineage experience, how much crossover have you found uh, jumping in and out of different curriculums and whatnot? You know, what are they what they did in uh, Modern Arnis, Did you see the same thing happen in Joe Lewis fighting systems? Or maybe they called it something different. Maybe they had a different application for it. But how much real difference is there? How much similarities do you see?
1: Yeah, you know, um, the reality is there's only so many ways to move, you know, um, uh, when, when you look at when you look at like geometry and 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 you look at the science and and physics and you look at everything and it's like there's only so many ways to move you know i mean and and every system or style has kind of their focal point i guess you'd say uh like for instance judo's mostly about throwing even though they do have other stuff and and jiu jitsu's mostly about you know submissions and ground game but they do have st- some stand up and they do have on that stuff. You know, Taekwondo is mostly about kicking, but they do have handwork and, and stuff. And you look at uh, modern Arnis, they're, they're mostly about weapons. And what's interesting, obviously they're a Filipino system. And what's interesting about the differences between American systems and Filipino systems, um, you know, in America, when we if we learn like like for instance American Kempo obviously that's what that's what my main deal is and um, you learn empty hand fighting first and then you learn weapons you know it's like uh, okay so we're gonna start with our empty hand then we're gonna put a stick in your hand then we're gonna put a knife in your hand and then we're gonna talk about firearms and stuff whereas in the Filipinos they teach you weapons first because as a kid in the Philippines you know you, you've always got a big old knife or sword. Uh, you know cutting cutting all the you know all, all the grass and everything um and uh and then it's like so if if you're if you constantly have a weapon in your hand for practicality use of cutting cutting all these weeds and stuff um and whatever they cut on top of that if you get attacked you have a weapon in your hand so you learn weapons first and then what happens is what if somebody deploys your weapon or or disarms your weapon. Now you got to know how to fight empty handed. So it's kind of backwards. They start with weapons and then they end with empty hand. Whereas we start with empty hand and we end with weapons. So it's kind of uh, the reverse principle, I guess you'd say, and uh, the reverse of what we do, but it's similar. It's like, well uh, you know, and I will say, Nothing against American Kempo, of course, but I will say that you know our weapon stuff is very, very uh, basic. And uh, in, in terms of you know, you get an American Kempo guy and you put a knife in his hand, and all he's trained in is American Kempo, and you put him against a Filipino guy who's trained Modern Arnis his whole life, the Kempo guy's going to be in trouble, and and that's just because. Modern Arnis is, is far more advanced when it comes to the weapon training. But what I've seen is every art that I've taken is very similar. It's just what do they specialize in, you know? Like, you know, what do you specialize in? What do you work hard at? It's like, well, we know that in Kempo there, there are judo throws and, and sweeps and takedowns in Kempo. It's just that's not what we focus on. So we don't we don't throw each other five hundred times a night, you know, and and as far as yeah, there's a lot of great Kempoists who who are phenomenal kickers. I'm not one of them, by the way, but there's a lot of great <laughs> there's a lot of great kempus who are phenomenal kickers. Okay, and it's like, but we don't do a thousand kicks a night. We're not Taekwondo, Tangsudo, Tangsudo. We're we're, we're not. Uh, Mudaquan we're we're not a we're not a Korean system. So we don't focus on let's do 250 side kicks, lead leg side kicks with our front leg and then 250 with our rear leg and then let's change it up to roundhouses and you know it, I'm sure most people teach I'm you know I'm sure most people teach like okay, we're going to start class, we're going to do 25 kick front kicks, 20 you know 25 uh sidekicks 25 roundhouse It just as a warm-up but but that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about what do you focus on you know and it's like jujitsu like you know in Kempo, we don't roll you know like like if all you do is kempo and you don't walk into an american kempo studio As an american Kempo stud and say all right guys tonight we're gonna roll they're gonna be like what are you talking about <laughs> you know um so but if you look Hey, hey, hey jujitsu and, and kenpo, they're very similar. It's just one of them's on the horizontal plane, one of them's on the vertical plane, really. Um now there are some changes, but uh we do have some jujitsu stuff in Kenpo. But again, and and jujitsu has some if you want to say Kenpo stuff in it, um, but I don't even look at it as styles. I look at it as basic movements, you know, the you can only punch so many ways. You can only kick so many ways, knees, elbows, sweeps, buckles, takedowns, throws. You know, there's only so many uh, submissions. There's only so many ways you can do things. It's just, what's your focus, you know? Totally. I
0: thought that's where I was coming from. I just kind of wanted to get your perspective on that one. Sure. So right on. Let me back up again here a little bit. So you went from training, getting up to third degree black belt, going to college, starting a club. How did you transition from starting a club, going to college into opening up your own full-time school?
1: That's a good question because I do have a lot of background that I didn't mention as far as opening up a school. Uh, It was 1997 slash 98 when I started teaching and I had five or six people and I was teaching at the the gym, which I told you at, at the um, university. Well, what had happened was they did the university had this uh, uh, newspaper, okay? That they and, and they were always writing an articles, and they had this newspaper that came out every week. Well, someone got wind that I was teaching. They one of the writers, and they interviewed me, and they put this big article in this 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 newspaper that they had. Well, (laughs) the athletic director of the uh, university read the article, and she confronted me and said, you got to stop teaching here because of liability purposes, because I wasn't teaching for the university. I was just using their facility to teach my students.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine why that might be a liability
1: issue. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I didn't think anything of it at the time, but um, when she said that, I honored. Obviously, I honored her her request, and I said, I you know, and I apologized to her, and uh, I I'm like, what am I going to do now? So I I lived at home uh, with my mom, and and we had a garage, so I decided to turn our and my mom didn't use the garage as a as a for her vehicle, so I decided to turn our garage into a. a a dojo basically it was small small garage i mean i could have only had 10 people at best fitting in there so i went in there or you know i talked to my mom about it she was fine with it because we weren't using it we were just using it for storage and what i did was i uh i got a hold of a guy that i knew real well and he had some old wrestling mats so he gave me this wrestling mat that i rolled out so we're not training on pavement, and uh, so I had a wrestling mat in there, and and it fit the whole the whole deal because it wasn't a big garage. And so I took my six students and I said we're going to start training at my house, and we only trained twice a week, you know, and and uh, so they would come in for twice a week for an hour each day, and uh, we would train, and even in the winter time, <laughs> you know, it was kind of funny because I would I had one little stinking um heater it was the the damn electric heater you plug in and it didn't really do much and uh i mean we we couldn't feel our hands and stuff and we're sparring you know we're, we're sparring each other and you can't feel your hands you know in in the winter time but it was it was either that or you don't train so i i did that that was 98 i would say and then um Finally I got to a point where okay I got to figure something out. So I found this patio. It was actually a hair studio and they had a patio outside. So they st- they let me teach there during the summer and it was a little bigger than my mom's garage so it worked out a little better and I ended up getting about 12 students all together cuz I started doing some advertising and stuff. So I got I'm up to 12 students now and uh I'm on this patio and then in the winter time I found another business that had a vacant room upstairs and so they would let me do um, classes twice a week upstairs in their vacant room and it was actually a really big room. I mean I could have fit probably 30 students in there maybe 40 at a time and uh, but I only had about 12 to 12 to 14 or so and I taught there for about, I'd say about three years, and then it was 2005 when the owner of that, uh, of that business, said he's moving out of town and shutting his business down, which means you're not going to be able to teach here anymore. And I was like, okay. And he said, We're leaving in two weeks. So he basically gave me 14 days to figure out what I was going to do. And it, it just so happened that, like, I'm all bummed. I'm like, Man, I'm not going to be able to teach anymore. And I have nowhere to teach because, like, I can't, you know, I just know where to go. Well, I'm driving around and I found, I just happened to be driving by. There's this mini mall we have in my town. And there was, The number one location in that mini mall is right on the corner of of two streets, and it's very, very nice, like very visible. And, of course, being a mini mall, it had a nice uh, parking lot. Well, I was driving by, and it had four rent signs on it. I'm like, oh, man. This is great and, and and that would be a perfect dojo but in my mind I'm thinking I can't afford that. I'm a college kid who has no money basically. Um I mean I worked part time but I I didn't make like good money. Um well actually no I'm sorry. At that time I was that was 2000 what was that? 2005. So I I graduated college 2002. So I was actually working full-time at that time. So, but I still, I had a lot of, I had a lot of bills, so I really didn't have much money. And, uh, so I look and I go, well, I'm just going to go, go, I'm going to go in and check it out. So I went in and checked it out, saw the owner, talked to the owner and I was paying a hundred dollars a month. Um, at the, the old place I was at, which is cheap as cheap could be. And, um, when I went in there, I asked the guy, okay, and he showed me the place and it was beautiful. I'm like, this is perfect. And he's like, we yeah, had $750 a month. So in my mind, I was only making, I was working for CYS at that time, uh, you know, McKean County, uh, working for county government. And I was only making like $25,000 a year. And this is in 2005. And I'm going, okay. <laughs> and I was barely, barely being able to pay my, normal bills you know and i'm like what am i gonna i can't afford 750 bucks a month so i told the guy i said that eh, well thank you i can't afford it see ya." and i left and as i was driving i'm like maybe i can get a small business loan you know i was thinking you know because we have this uh obviously several banks in the town but th- this one p- bank in particular that i was aware of they kind of um uh, they give you small business loans uh, and, and small personal loans uh, without have, having to have great credit, because back then, my cre- I didn't really have credit that much back then. Well, so I went down there, and needless to say, I ended up getting a $3,000 loan, uh, and it actually was a personal loan. It wasn't a business loan. So I called the guy back up right away. I said, hey, you still got that place available? And he said, yeah. And I said, all right, I'll take it. And he wanted, you know, first and last month's rent and a security deposit. So I got a, I got the, you know, I got the uh, three thousand uh, dollar loan. And I think it was, you know, first and last month's rent, and he wanted like three hundred bucks or something for security deposit or something like that. I can't remember what it was, but it was close to two thousand. So I had about a thousand, little over a thousand left that I thought, okay. Um, I already paid for the first month, Um, so I'm okay there. And and in my mind, I was like, if I have a storefront, because I never – up until that point, I didn't have a storefront. So if I had a storefront, I know I'll get more students. And to fast forward, that was in April 2005 I opened my doors uh, uh, as far as a legit – storefront legit commercial karate school basically so it was april 2005 and uh so one month later I, w- I i went from 12 students uh one month later i was up to 40 students so i went Damn. from 12 to 40 in one in one month and then a month later i was up to 60 students so. So we're looking at – I went from 12 students in April, and in June I had 60. And, uh, and then I did – it kept building. I got up to 90 – it was like 94 students, which is huge in my town because, we, like I said, we only have 9,000 people in my town. I mean, it's a small town.
0: Just out of curiosity, what was the square footage of that dojo?
1: At the time, it's bigger now. I'm still there it's bigger now because we built out once I got established and stuff and I had the money we built, we built out a bit. Uh, so now it's now it's 2,700 feet, uh, square foot. Uh, back then it was only 1,700 square foot
0: with 90 students.
1: Yes. And, and not, not, I don't mean, I don't mean 90 in one class. I, I mean, 90 altogether. So,
0: that's that's still a heck of a student count for a seventeen hundred square foot school. That's phenomenal.
1: Yes, yes, it is. And 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 that w- that was back then. And I wasn't charging a whole lot. I didn't, un- you know, I didn't understand back then. I didn't understand the business. I, I was only charging thirty bucks a month, so it was easy to get ninety people because you're only charging thirty bucks a month. And then when I realized this is ridiculous, I need to be charging a hundred bucks a month at least. Um, once I changed it, I went from $30 a month and I changed it to a hundred dollars a month. I went from 94 students to 50 and I was making more money and it was a lot easier, a lot easier (laughs) to manage. So it's like, so, you know, you go from 94 students at 30 bucks a month to 50 students at a hundred a month.
0: Yeah. You go from 2,700 to 5,000.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, 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 uh and, 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 Sean Kelly's the one I can credit for that, by the way, because when I got with him in 2006, I had only been teaching uh, at that school for year and a half. And, and he, uh, he's like, you're crazy for charging only for, he's like, you need to charge a hundred bucks a month. And we're talking back in 2006. And I took his advice and, uh, because of him, I'm still open because you can't live off of 30 bucks a month per student. I mean, come on, you know, as a full-time job, that is, you know?
0: Yep. It might be okay as a part-time, but not to live off of.
1: Yeah. 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 Part-time that'd be fine. You know, like, like if I was, you know, if I had a job where I'm making good money and a good full-time job and I'm just teaching on the side, I'm perfectly fine with 30 bucks a month. But this is what I do for a living. You know, yeah, I write, but that's that's a side deal. That's a side hustle, you know?
0: <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. All right, so we moved into, you got into your own school. When did you start writing professionally and start bringing out some of those uh, books that you've written? I believe there's four of them, if my math was correct, on adding them up.
1: Actually, there's six. But um, there's four that I wrote. Myself. And there's two that I co-wrote. Got it. I stand corrected. Um, Yeah, but no, that's okay. Um, but anyway, um, I graduated uh, college April 2002 uh, with my bachelor's degree in writing. And that's when I started writing freelancing uh, for Inside Kung Fu magazine and Black Belt magazine. That, that was my start professionally. Um, basically it was, it was, they call it on speculation. You basically back then you would email, uh, the editor and you'd say, Hey, I have an idea for an article. Uh, here's my idea. Would you like to see the article on speculation? And if they liked the idea, they would say, yes, please send us the article. So you'd have to write the entire article and you would, you would email it to them. And if they liked it, they bought it. And if they, and, and, and they would buy it from you for uh, let's see inside Kung Fu paid a hundred bucks an article, uh, black belt paid 250 dial or $250 an article. Um, so, uh, I was fine with whatever because I wasn't doing it for the money. I'll take the money of course, but I was doing it for publication credits. And, uh, so, I would uh, I would say, here's my idea. They would say, no, nope, don't like that idea. Or they would say, yeah, that's a great idea. Send us the article on speculation. And all that means is, on speculation just means you, you send it to them and they read it and they read the entire article. And, and if they like it, they buy it. If they don't, they say, no, thank you. Well, I was never turned down, so I'm proud of that. But I, uh, I, so when I, what I did was I would send them my article and they'd say, yep. And when they bought it, they would, they would send you a check, you know, but they didn't send you the check until after it was published. And so th- they bought it and they'd be like, all right, it's going to be published six months from now. So you'd wait like six months and they published it in, in the magazine. And then you would get a check a week later. Well, I did that for four years, 2004 to 2008. And I had nine articles published all together. And then I decided it was uh, seven in um, Inside Kung Fu, two in Black Belt. Well, then I decided, okay, um, I want to start writing books. And that's when I started writing books. And I started off with um, what was called the Legends of Kenpo biography series. And it started with Reiner Schulte. So the very first book I wrote was his biography. And then I moved on to Sean Kelly and I wrote his biography and I, I planned on writing several more. Um, they just didn't really pan out and and maybe in the future, but then I, what I did was my third book was called martial intellect. And what that is, is it's just a, uh, it's a a collective articles that I've written throughout the years, martial arts articles. Um, And then after I wrote that one, I wrote probably my most notable Kempo book, which is called Kempo Perspectives. And what that is, is I I came up with this concept of, you know, we all know that American Kempo, you can put 10 black belts, American Kempo black belts, or even seniors, let's just say seniors, you put 10 American Kempo seniors who all trained with Ed Parker in one room, you ask them, the same question, you're going to get several different answers. And that's what I love about American Kempo is the fact that there is no one way. And uh, so I'm like, you know, what would be awesome is if I could get a bunch of seniors and I just come up with all these questions and I ask all these seniors the exact same questions and I put their answers in a book. and so I came up with the concept, I'm like that's a great idea and I I mess, I contacted all these people and I ended up getting 15 of them to agree to it. And I came up with 33 questions uh, regarding the kempo system and I asked all 15 of them all 33 questions and I put all their answers. I edited them as far as uh, grammar and stuff, but I put all their their answers in the book. And um it ended up being four hundred and ninety-one pages. And and that's the book that I'm most recognized for in Kempo, as far as that goes. And it, like I said, it was called Kempo Perspectives, and everybody loved it. Was, it's a great book. I mean, many, 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 many seniors answered all these questions.
0: Available on Amazon.com.
1: Yes. Yes. Yep. That it, it's available on Amazon. Um and again great it's just i've gotten so much feedback for that book that that's the book that i've gotten the most feedback for to be honest with it um that positive feedback of it's a great book and people still promote it on on facebook all the time tagging me in it but yeah, um five-star
0: rating on amazon it, just, just yeah you know, absolutely quick plug there you know
1: yeah, yeah oh yeah yeah we, we've had several ratings on there and uh, I think, I want to say around 20, I can't remember. Um, but, but yeah, it's a five-star rating. And then after that book, Dave Hebler, who's now my instructor, but at the time he wasn't, he called me up and, and asked me to write his book for him. Um, uh, 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 he, he wanted to write a book. He, he, what he had done was he did what's called, uh, he did a DVD. Uh, it was an interview that he did somewhere. And I, I don't remember where he did it, to be honest with you, but it was basically whoever it was flew him in. Um, the whole premise of it was they're flying him in. Uh, he's going to sit there and drink a glass of wine and they're going to ask him all these questions about Elvis because, uh, Obviously, I'm sure you know, I, 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 but but just in case anybody doesn't know who's listening, it, it, you know, once this is out, um, Dave Hebler was Elvis Presley's bodyguard from 1972 to 1976, one of his bodyguards, not the only one, but one of them. Well, so Dave spent four years with Elvis, and Dave was actually Elvis's personal instructor in Kempo, along with Ed Parker. Ed Parker also taught Elvis for a little while. Um, but anyway, so Dave called it the it was a DVD that came out, Dave called it the Elvis experience. And it basically he just had people asking him questions about his personal relationship with Elvis and he would answer it. Well, he wanted to come up with a book about his experience with Elvis. Um, and he wanted it to be about Elvis the person, because everybody knew about Elvis the entertainer. And and you know, everybody knew about Elvis as, like, this icon, but he wanted people to know about who Elvis was as a person, so he asked me to write the book for him, which I did. Well, I'm technically a co-author because it's his story, and it's from his voice, you know, Um, so when you read the book, it says, yeah, I met Elvis in this and that, so it's basically his, his voice, but I'm the one that wrote it. Well, anyway, uh, it's a great book, and, and that's the best-selling book I have, but it's probably because Elvis' name's on it, and it's because Dave uh, was friends with Elvis, you know? So that makes it a, a, a bigger deal. Um, so that was the one I did after Kempo Perspectives, was the Elvis Experience with Dave Hebler, And then the last book I wrote was just – it just got published last year which was, it's called Journeying Beyond the Mountaintop. And that, and what that, that's uh, Tom Bleeker's autobiography. And Tom, and for those who don't know Tom Bleeker, he was, you know, he was an original old guard. He, uh, he, he got his uh, black belt under Ed Parker in 1965. When he started the only two seniors other than Ed Parker were Dave Hebler and uh, Chuck Sullivan, Chuck Sullivan got his black belt in 1962. And I think, uh, Dave Hebler got his right after that not not long after that.
0: Yeah, I believe it was Hebler um, and McSweeney right after Chuck Sullivan.
1: Yes, exactly. And and so you're looking at when when uh Tom Bleeker started in 61 if I remember correctly. 61 or 62. Uh actually I think it was 62 because of the fact that I think both at, uh both uh Sullivan and Hebler were black belts when when uh Bleeker started. So I think bleaker started in 62 and then bleaker became a black belt in 65. So he's an old guard. Uh, he, and he was a Hollywood screenwriter. He wrote, he wrote screenplays for William Shatner. Uh, he wrote, uh, he, he wrote for Blake Edwards who was back in the day was the number one director in Hollywood, uh, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, so, so bleaker has a great story in Kempo. He has a great story with his, screenwriting career and of course he's the one that came up with the journey series journey one journey two journey three uh journey one was the journey journey two was the international journey and then journey three was the journey book three and um so he did all that plus he also wrote the number one book about bruce lee because he was good friends with bruce lee uh and he trained with bruce lee and they actually lived in the same complex together blah 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 uh, basically read for those of you who are interested read his book it's called journeying beyond the mountaintop
0: also available at amazon.com
1: yes and and i was honored to uh that he asked me because to me you know i mean i'm a writer but i'm not of his caliber and to have him ask me to write his book now don't get me wrong he he put in more work than i did but to have him ask me to be a part of this that meant a lot to me and uh and i'm very proud that that I, that we wrote that book and and we've gotten a lot of good feedback of that as well and uh but yeah so that's uh, i so that's the six books i've written i'm currently working on two more and i and i've got i've got about 10 in the pipeline but i've only i've been working on two right now
0: can i bait you into giving us a preview
1: sure yeah yeah uh the one, I actually started this one about, oh, geez, this, and when I say I started it, but I, you know, it's been an on and off thing. It was about a year ago. And and this one is, it's about bouncing. I was a bouncer for five years. Um, and I've noticed that there's n- not hardly any books about bouncing. And when I looked, I because you know, as a writer, you do your research. You don't want to write a book that's already been written a thousand times. So I'm like, you know, it would be great to have a book about bouncing. So I did my research, and there's only two or three books I could find on bouncing. One of them was called uh A Bouncer's Guide to Barroom Brawling. And that was by Peyton Quinn. And and that book, I have, by the way, I have the two main books on bouncing that are that have ever been written um and uh a bouncer's guide to barroom brawling was one of them and that was basically just about brawling like how to deal with different types of brawling and then the other book was called uh it was by mark the animal McYoung, and it was called pool cues beer bottles and baseball bats and basically, it's how to deal with, as a bouncer, how to deal with people swinging beer bottles at your head, trying to hit you in, in the nuts with a pool cue, you know, um, how to hit you if they're swinging a baseball bat at you, basically any weapon coming at you. But there, after I did all my research, and I've got both those books, obviously, after I did all my research and I looked, I did an Amazon search for all these books, I did a Google search for all, uh, bouncing there are no books at all that, that basically cover the ins and outs of bouncing at all. So I decided, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write basically the Bible of bouncing, but I'm not calling it that. But that's basically what I'm going to do. And I decided, all right, I know a lot about bouncing. I did it for five years, and then I did a bunch of security aside from that. But I wanted this to be specific to bouncing. So I decided I went on Facebook and I did a bunch of stuff and I asked all these people, Hey, Hey, have you ever bounced before? And how many years experience do you have? And blah, blah, blah. And I kind of led people into, yeah. Oh yeah. I've been bouncing for 20 years. Oh yeah. I've been doing, Oh yeah. So then I sent them private messages and I said, Hey, I'm writing a book about bouncing. Would you be willing to answer a questionnaire for me? And I had several people, 20 some people. Yeah, no problem. So I sent the, I I came up with all these questions. I mean, I'm talking probably 20, 25 questions. And I sent them this questionnaire. And I told them, give me as much as you can about every question or as little. I don't care what what you do. And I said, if there's any questions you don't feel like answering or any questions you don't know how to answer, leave them blank. And of course, uh, and I know, you know, Richard Post, you, he was one of the interviewees that you've, that you've had. And oh, yeah. and Richard was one of the guy. he was one of the guys that, uh, that, uh, answered my questionnaire for me and he gave me a lot of good stuff. But, um, so anyway, so I, I did this huge questionnaire, got about 20, I want to say around 25 people. Uh, because I, even though I know what I'm doing, I don't know everything. So, you know, you got to do your research, get, get whatever you can. And, uh, so that book, um, I'm about probably 70% done with it. And, um, I call it, uh, the, the, the main title is called doorman. And then the subtitle is the art and science of bouncing. Um, so I keep it real simple doorman, the art and science of bouncing, just because a bouncer their, their basic uh, professional title is Doorman. And uh, so I keep it real simple. And, and the whole book is about anything and everything you need to know about bouncing. Whether, whether you're a seasoned, seasoned bouncer or you're thinking about getting into the trade or you're just a martial artist that wants to learn some more stuff about um, security, because obviously bouncing can, it works into basic security. It works into bodyguarding. It works into all that stuff. And, uh, and it works into general awareness, just little simple things like know where your exits are something that simple. Like when I'm in, when I'm a bouncer and I'm in the, uh, I'm working, I need to know where the, where the exits are. If I have to escort somebody out, I need to know, okay, where are they at in relationship to where are the exits and which exit is best to take them out so I don't have to fight them for, you know, much, you know, for like 20 feet. If I only have to fight them for five feet, I'd rather do that than 20 feet and so on and so forth. If I have to fight them and, uh, and things like that. So just little simple things that you'd like, well, know where your exits are. If I'm in a restaurant, I should strategically place myself if I have the ability to, you know, put my back against something and, and I would rather face the open area and and face know where the exit is. If something goes down while I'm in a restaurant, I need to know how to exit if I have to and so on and so forth. So, I mean, so there's a lot of basic stuff you can get out of that book for basic awareness. Um, and then the second book that I'm writing right now, um, is I'm actually doing uh, Doreen DiRienzo, uh who used to be Doreen Cagliandro. Um, I'm doing her autobiography for her. And uh so she uh she, she I know her pretty well and and uh, and and she's an awesome lady and she asked me to write her book for her. So um I told her I would and I'm about halfway done. So I'm about 70% done with the bouncing book. I'm about halfway done with Doreen's book, her book, the title of her book is I'm not too fat to dance because she, uh, when she was a kid, she, she was a little bit overweight and, uh, she wanted to dance and, and, uh, everybody told her she's too fat to dance. So the premise of her entire book is I'm not too fat to dance. And we talk about obviously her Kempo career. We talk about her dancing. We talk about her sports. See, we, t- all this cool stuff. So that's the other one I'm working on. And then like I said, I've got about 8 more in the pipeline for down the road, but we won't talk about those until we get these other two published, but but that's where we're at there.
0: Yeah, that time thing keeps cropping up and getting in the way, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, if I could write full time, eight, 8 to 10 hours a day, these books would be done pretty quick, but I only have about an hour to 2 hours a day to write with my, with my work schedule or, you know, with my running my business. And I've got a family, I've, I've got a wife, I've got a, f- a daughter who's going to be 14 in April. So, you know, we, you know, we, I, you know, you have a life <laughs> you can't, do, and, and I'm i I'm a Christian I go to church and, and I, and I'm a musician and I play at church as a musician and I do all this stuff. So it's not like I have, you know, it's not like I'm sitting at home twiddling my thumbs wondering what I'm going to do next, you know? Okay,
0: hang on. You I have not seen anywhere in your bio anywhere that says talking about music being a musician. So now we got to talk about that.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, oh, absolutely, dude. Uh music is my freaking life, dude. I lo- I love music. Love it. And and uh I uh I'll give you the short version of this cuz I don't want to get too crazy, but I uh I didn't know anything about music. I was about I don't know. Uh, actually, I was 21. I I believe I was 21, and I was in a in a bar, and they were doing karaoke. And I didn't know I could sing at all. I had no clue. And I go up. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go up, and everybody's having fun. I'm like, I'm going to go up and sing a song, and I, I, I don't even remember what it was. I pick a song, and I sing it, and everybody's like, holy crap, you, you're amazing, and you're this, and you're – I'm going – what i'm like no way um well come to find out i was a pretty natural singer so then i'm like all right well then i started i always wanted to to play the guitar well i should preface this with i started on the drums let me just say that i forgot to tell you that uh, i started messing with the drums when i was 18 years old i bought a drum set a, a crappy one but i i bought like a 200 drum set started messing on those And then I ended up getting a much nicer kit and I was really good at the drums. And I did, I just correlated it with having coordination from being a martial artist. It made it pretty easy for me. And so the drums were easy for me. Like I just boom, boom, boom. And I'm not, don't get me wrong. I I'm not, you know, I wouldn't be, you know, the drummer for Metallica or anything, but I'm just saying I was pretty good. Um, and never had a lesson, never had a drum lesson a day in my life. But I was just natural, naturally good at it. Well, in my mind, I'm like, once I found out that I could sing, I'm like, I want to sing. But it's like playing the drums and singing is not really ideal, even though some people do. Guys
0: that can pull that off, but that's a tough skill set.
1: Yeah, and and it's it's just not ideal. So I I knew I needed to learn. I wanted to learn how to play the acoustic guitar, preferably acoustic electric, so you could plug it in. You know. And uh, so I bought an acoustic guitar. I was probably 20. Well, I I was still 21 at that time, actually. I was 21 years old. I bought an acoustic guitar for $250. bucks. did not know crap about them. Didn't know. I didn't even know what I was buying. I just walked into the music store. I said, I want an acoustic guitar. Okay. And and they try to sell you on stuff. Have you ever played one before? I said, no. (laughs) You know, so we go into all that garbage and then (laughs) finally I buy myself, I I buy myself a $250 uh, Takamini and I take it home and I'm like, I had no freaking clue what to do. Like I had no clue. I take it home and I'm like, all right, what do I do now? Like I'm holding it and I'm like, I have no freaking clue what to do other than I started strumming the strings without... Doing any chords. I just literally strum the strings. I go, this doesn't sound right. <laughs> I had no freaking clue. No clue. So I go, what the hell? So, and I'm trying to do all this. I'm like, this sucks. And I put it in the corner of my bedroom and I let it sit there for about a year, actually, a little over a year. I was 22, 22 and a half or so, 22 years old. And I'm like, I really need to learn how to play that damn thing. So I went out and I bought a book, uh, a chord book. I'm like, maybe I can learn from a book. And so I opened the book and it says, put your finger here, put your finger here, put your finger here. Okay. And, and you know, le- learn how to play a G chord, learn how to play an E minor, learn how to play a C, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, all right. And I'm struggling with it because, again, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm putting my fingers in the right spot, but it sounds like crap. So, you know, long story short, I worked diligently, and I started, oh, okay, now I got it. And I started learning, okay, here's a G chord, here's a C, here's a D, here's an A minor, blah, blah, blah. And I sucked horribly, but I could strum. Okay, I can strum a G, I can strum a D, I can strum a C. So I did all that. But I couldn't play a song because there's a big difference between putting you f- taking 12 seconds to put your fingers in the proper position for a C chord and then strumming it, and then oh, I, uh, give me 15 seconds. I got to take it from the C to the D, and and it's like you can't play a song like that. Like you need to be able to go from C to D like now.
0: Why wow, that? You record it and then play it back at you know 15 speed. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah so back then i'm like oh geez this is and and you know i started getting frustrated again but i kept going kept going well then one of my best friends well actually he 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 was my best friend at that time he's still one of my best friends but he was like my main my main best friend he was one of my students he is a phenomenal guitarist and and when i say phenomenal he could be famous he's that good and um I decided I asked him, hey, his name's Randy. I said, Randy, you you, you want to like get together and start practicing some music? I'd like to I'd like to actually like play out someday, you know? And Randy had played in several bands. I had up until that point, I never played in a band the day of my life. Randy was kind enough to say, yeah. So he came to my house and we would play. he'd come to my house once a week. And we would play, and he would he, he actually taught me a few things, and I started getting pretty decent on the guitar. And so we, then I started learning songs and, and blah, blah, blah. So, make another long story short. Um, we get together, we start a band, just he and I. He did a, the straight up electric guitar, I did acoustic electric. We both sang because his voice is phenomenal as well. So, we harmonized well together. We called ourselves Fluidity and we played we played out for three and a half years. And we're talking, we played probably once a month for about three and a half years. And then he decided he wanted to get back into full bands. So he got back into full bands and then I wasn't playing out again. And then one day, years later, uh, this would have been about, 6 years later, i just someone asked me, "Hey, we're looking for a lead singer for our band. Um would you be willing to to try out?" And I said, "You know what? I've never played in a full band." So, yeah, let's do it. So, I tried out and they wanted me and so I played in my first full band. And what's funny is we were looking for a second guitarist cuz we had uh, we had the drummer, we had the lead guitarist, we had the uh bass player and we had me as the front man well my buddy randy ended up being our second guitarist and he was actually the better of the two and so we we were in a band for we played out for about a year and a half and then i had a bunch bunch of stuff going on in my life i had to quit the band and then um it was about a year later i got it i became the front man of another band And I played with them for about a year and a half, and this was without Randy, about a year and a half. And then I quit that, or we all mutually decided to quit. We had a, like our bass player had stuff going on. Our lead guitarist had stuff going on. So we were just like, let's just mutually end it. And we did. Well, then Randy and I got back together as Fluidity after several years, and he and I have now been back together playing. We, now, we haven't played in this last year because of COVID, but we've been back together since then. And I also play with another one of my best friends. His name's Tyler, and we do a two-person acoustic thing. So, But anyway, now I'm actually really comfortable as a musician, but it took a long time, man. It was a lot of discipline, um, but I credit that to the martial arts, obviously. I mean, you self-disciplines everything. If you want to be good at anything, you have to have self-discipline. And I learned that mostly through martial arts.
0: Oh, uh, You beat me to it. I was going to try the tie back here. So how do we tie back in martial arts and music and writing and all these things? And it comes down to self-discipline. Mm-hmm. So bravo for getting there before mm-hmm. I got there.
1: <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, it's the truth, man. And to me, it all ties together. Uh, and, and just a quick mention, uh, if you haven't read it or anybody else hasn't read it, Tom Bleeker's book, the the journey book three, I was actually one of the honorees in the book and my, my stories in that book, it's called the journey book three. And of course that's on Amazon as well. But the reason I say that, and I'm not trying to, you know, overly plug things, but it's one of those things where um, my stories in there and I talk about my music in there. I talk about um, my writing and my, Tempo journey. So it, everything you and I are talking about here basically is in that book in some way.
0: Oh, well, fair enough. That happens to be the only journey book I don't have. So that would explain why I didn't hear about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 You should check it out, man. Um, you know, Angelo Collado's in it. Uh, Sabora Chan's in it. Uh, who the hell? A uh, um, bunch of people, but obviously uh, I'm just saying Sabora, Angelo, myself, David Gigliotti is another one who's a brotherhood guy. Four brotherhood guys are in that book, the four of us. And then and then there's a bunch of other good people in there. Some of them I don't, I've never heard of, but who cares? They have good stories, you know?
0: And that's the whole point, you know, whether it's in the journey or whether it's on this show. It's all about the stories and what the impact has made yeah. on that person. And then in turn, you know, I really like to think of um, all of us in the martial arts that have been in it for any major length of time, we're all in effect a, in the military, they would call them force multipliers. You know, we get trained by mm-hmm. a small group, then we turn in, around and train others, and then that just perpetuates itself, right? So, for in my perspective, Absolutely. everybody's journey, there's a reason why if you've been in it for a length of time, you stayed in it for a length of time. There's a reason why if you made the commitment to become a teacher, you are making that commitment to yourself and to your students at the same time.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So how did you, for, sure. you know, for in your perspective I don't think we've covered this part yet how did you make that transition and how did you feel it was different becoming a teacher versus when you were being a student yourself
1: Okay well that's a great question um uh, my my opinion is this you should always 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 be a student period My opinion is um being a student is just as valuable and just as important as being an instructor or being a teacher okay because obviously the obvious thing is you can't be a teacher without students so you this you have to always be a student because my what i've noticed is there there's a lot of people with big fat egos out there and i hate and i i don't mean to sound rude but i can't stand that i can't stand these people that think they're freaking God's gift to anything, and uh, because that's when you stop learning. The minute you stop learning, you, you become irrelevant, in my opinion. So as a student, if you know you are a lifetime student, you know that you are constantly and always going to learn, and you know that you don't know it all. And let me just quickly plug this. I saw your interview or heard your interview with Joe Dimick, and I've never met him but I do know he's Mr. Post's, Richard Post's, um, instructor. And one thing that stood out to me during his interview was how humble he was and how he was, he basically went on and on about, he's not great. He's not the man. He's not this. He's not that. Um, he was so humble, but yet I'm going to tell you right now, that dude is beyond amazing as a martial artist. He's beyond amazing as a teacher and and the fact that this guy who's so amazing constantly tried to remind you during the interview that, listen, I don't even feel worthy of a 10th degree. I know what I need to work on. I know what he he even said, referred to himself, you know, in the third person, he said, I know what Joe Joe Dimmick needs to work on. And to me, that was so amazing and so just great. And he's absolutely right. You got Joe Dimmick who taught some of the best fighters that Kempo's ever seen, by the way, he was, he was being very humble. He taught some of the best fighters. Yeah. He taught some of the best fighters that Kempo's ever seen. They beat Chuck Norris's team several times and he was being very humble. Yes. Chuck, Chuck's team beat him a, a few times, but if you look at the if you look at the stat the statistics or you look at every you know you look at the all the results Joe Dimmock's team beat Chuck Norris's team way more than Chuck's team beat them and Dimmock, you know what Dimmock says you know cuz you heard him he was like Chuck Norris is one of the the greatest martial artists in the world he's he said he's humble he's uh he has manners he's respectful he's he's what every martial artist should be. That's what Joe Dimmock said about Chuck Norris. Well, I'm going to tell you, that's what I say about Joe Dimmock, And, and, and it's the same deal. So my whole point is, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but my whole point is um, even Joe Dimmock, who I think is beyond phenomenal is reminding us that he's a student and that he needs to, he needs to get better. Well, I am a thousand percent right there with them. Uh, you should always be a student. I don't care how good you are, how great you are, how phenomenal you are. If you think you know it all, or you think you're at your peak. That's where you stop moving forward. So
0: that's why you never try to a trick a writer. See that, that, that was it, what we call a trick question. And it was, it was exactly the answer. I thought was going to happen. So.
1: <laughs> oh, cool. Well, but yeah, and, and, and then, of course, on the, other, on the flip side, as far as being a teacher, the teacher is just as, obviously, just as valuable as a student. I mean, it, you can't be a student without a teacher, and you can't be a teacher without a student. So it's equal. It's 50-50 playing field. And the way I look at it is a teacher can learn from every student, and a student can learn from every teacher, even if they're a bad teacher. You can still learn something. So don't shut anybody off. You know, you know, have an open mind, listen to people, you know, you're going to learn more from one person than you're going to learn from somebody else. We get that. Um, And you got bad students and you got good students and you got great students. You got bad teachers, you got good teachers, you got great teachers. Um, So that's, that's pretty much the deal. But for me, uh, to answer your question, I guess uh, directly would be, um, I look at myself as always being a student. I'm always open to learn from anybody. I don't care who you are or what I've heard or whatever. And I'm always looking to be the best teacher I can be. I'm always looking to be a better teacher, and and that's my deal. So I am a teacher and I am a student, and I look at both of those as equals. I don't I don't strut around, you know, carrying my, uh, you know, semi tires as I think I'm Mr. Big Cat <laughs> and, 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 uh, you know, and, and saying, I'm a teacher, I'm an instructor. You bow down to me. I'm the man. Ho, ho, ho. And I also don't walk around as a jackass student thinking I know more than the teacher. Cause I can't stand that either. You know, you got these students that think they know more than the instructor. And I hate that too. Um, so just be nothing for nothing. We all should have the same attributes, whether you're a teacher or a student or both, because you're either a student or you're both.
0: So totally you're either agree. a student
1: or you're a student and a teacher. So um, you should have respect. You should, you should be humble. You should have integrity. Uh, you know, you should be honest. You should have self-discipline. You should practice what you preach. Um, you you know, you know, me being a Christian, you know, it's like, you know, for me, I feel like I need to follow, you know, the Christian principles. Um, but that if you're not a Christian, that's fine. You know, so I don't, I don't put that on everybody, but it's one of those things where you should have the same work ethics period. And, and the same respect and, and blah, blah, blah. Don't look on, don't look down on somebody just because they're a purple belt. It's like, that doesn't mean anything. You know, I'll be honest with you. I've seen, I've seen purple belts that'll wipe the floor with some black belts, you know? So don't be looking down at people just because they're wearing a different color cloth. Who cares? You know, but anyway, sorry about going on a tangent. Totally agree.
0: completely aligned there i mean you, you got even the people that have are might, might be wearing something that's a quote unquote lower rank for our listeners who may not be familiar with martial arts you know i'm pretty sure they've got the idea that you know generally white belts at the at the beginning of training and generally black belt is toward what i call the middle training yeah. but in american society it has a tendency to mean like you're an expert uh but realistically yeah, exactly. if you've been around martial arts for any length of time like when you first get your black belt what that really means is now you're ready to really explore and really learn that's just the start of your real knowledge
1: real knowledge growth. I totally agree. And, and it's unfortunate that a lot of people have a different opinion because you are absolutely correct. Uh, I totally agree with you. And anybody that I talk to that really knows what they're talking about um, says the same. Like when you become a black belt, that's where you start. Like that's not the ending point. I mean, come on. You know, it, it, it's like, imagine going through medical school. You finally became a doctor. And then you say, I'm done. You didn't even, you didn't even get the practical experience. You became a, you got your MD. And instead of getting a job and being a medical doctor for 30 years, you got your MD and you said, I'm done. What's the point of that?
0: Yeah, I, I don't I don't get disappointed when I see people drop out in the colored ranks because, you know, a lot of people are there for you know different reasons in martial arts. Some people join, yeah. you know, sadly because they've been accosted or assaulted, and now they're looking for ways to mm-hmm. protect themselves in the future. And that's, you know, that's the part of it I hate the most, but those are also the people that I really love helping the most. And then you get people that join yeah. because, you know, they, maybe they were bullied, they're not necessarily accosted, but now they just, you know, they would prefer to learn some protection skills before it happens, which is great. You know, I think anybody should be involved with it for protective stuff like that. And especially, you know, women, unfortunately statistics say one in three are gonna get assaulted in their lifetime. So I would absolutely advocate for more women to be joining martial arts. Uh, But some people come in for the social camaraderie. Some people, you know, view it as, you know, hey, we all wear these fancy pajamas and these fancy colored, you know, stripes of cloth around our waist and we dance around and we have fun and that's what they're there for. And frankly, I, yeah. You know, maybe I'm biased, but I'd rather them see them do that than you know some other activity which doesn't provide a productive outlet or doesn't provide some knowledge growth. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And and uh, yeah, I mean, everybody has a different reason as to why they join martial arts, and 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 we don't we don't even have to be art specific because it doesn't matter. Because you know, just like the story I told you about me when I was a kid. I didn't know the difference between taekwondo and judo and jujitsu and kempo and Kung Fu. I didn't care. I just wanted to do martial arts and I didn't know. And then as you go through, you know, you get educated, then you learn the differences. And and, and as long as you understand that there is no one ultimate style, because there isn't, um, as long as you respect everything and everybody, it's, it's great. But, uh, but yeah, everybody joins for a different reason. And then what I've found, and I'm sure you have as well, is that, you know, maybe they join for one reason. And then after being there for a year or two, it's like, now they're getting a heck of a lot more out of it than what they even signed up for.
0: Yep. And it's, you know, a lot of this stuff, especially through the first couple levels, there's not a ton of stuff that you're really going to get out of it if you're completely brand new, and you're you're not one of those people that really picks up stuff physically that quickly. The first couple of levels, you're going to struggle through them, and you're not going to see the long-term benefits of it for a while. And you have a lot of people across the industry that drop out. I think the industry is still around a fifty percent dropout level. So what that means is, you had if you have a hundred people to join at the same time, you know, that never happens. But just for the sake of argument, hundred people join the same time, yeah. fifty of those are going to make their first level graduation, and then twenty-five of those are going to go on to the next level, and then you know. 13, because you can't get twelve. And yeah, a half. yeah, you're you know, right. It it goes up by fifty percent. You you have fifty percent attrition rate each level. And you know, I, I don't worry so much about the people that kind of dropped out at the initial levels. I kind of wish they would stay a little bit longer than that. Typically, when you get towards the the middle intermediate, high you know, high intermediate range of the underbelt system. So that means people before black belt level, by that point you've gotten a decent handle on self-defense to the point where you know I'm not as worried about you in a self-defense situation and maybe that's all you were looking for and that's fine the ones that bother yeah. me are the ones that drop out you know at that first level or the second level and the ones that bother me even more like you said are the ones that okay great i got my black belt i'm done uh yeah exactly those are the ones that really bother me because then you get the guys out there that are running around going yeah i got my black belt 20 years ago yep i'm a black belt okay cool what have you done with it since then uh yeah exactly uh, no, not a much. I got it back. Yep. Okay, cool. So yeah, you earned a black belt. Cool. You were a black belt in my book. Great. Got it.
1: Yes. And, and it's funny. It's funny you say that. Cause I, I tell people that all the time. I'm like the people who say, okay, let's say they quit 10 years ago. Right. And, and they say, Hey, I'm a black belt. I'm like, no, you used to be a black belt. You were a black belt. You earned it, but you haven't done anything in 10 years. So it's like it would be like me saying, "I'm a surgeon, but I, ret- you know, I retired 20 years ago, but I'm a surgeon." No, you used to be a surgeon. You are not an active surgeon anymore.
0: That's so funny. My my first teacher used that exact same analogy so many times. It's like you want the brain surgeon who retired 20 years ago to operate on your brain exactly you know i mean respectfully i would love to have him in the room or her in the room when i'm having my brain surgery done i'm just not necessarily sure i want them operating the tools
1: yes exactly because they still have the knowledge in most cases i guess they might not be uppity up 100 percent, but they know a hell of a lot more than most people
0: And they know a hell of a lot more than me so i have no problem with them being in the room just maybe not running the tools yeah
1: but i'd re- yeah i'd rather have the active surgeon who who has done 12 brain surgeries in the last week i'd rather have them do it on me than right. the one that the last time he did a brain surgery was 15 years ago right now no flip thanks. that
0: around if that person you know is coming in to sit on a board to see if a new student is ready to graduate as an md i'm perfectly fine with that you know if that's the same person oh, who got their black belt yep. 20 years ago Wants to come sit on a promotion board to see if these new people you know are up to speed and to get their black belts. I'm fine with that too.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: you know, that that's an entirely different equation. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So that's awesome. I, I love hearing all those stories about you know being student teacher relationships because I completely agree with all of that. You can't be a good teacher without being a good student, and you have to be a good student before you can become a good teacher. But I wouldn't be doing my due diligence if I didn't you know, prompt you to give us a little more about what being a teacher means so much. Because you've traveled around the world teaching. I know you've had thousands of students by this point. How about one or two of those stories, or maybe even more of those if you want to share them, but what are those stories about people that you've impacted and they've come back and said that their life's been changed because of studying and all of that good stuff?
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know... For me, number one, it's a blessing to be a teacher, to be a martial arts instructor. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I never intended on being a full-time martial arts instructor. That was not my plan. Um, As a Christian, uh, you know, I follow, I try to follow God's word as much as possible. And um, and as a Christian, uh, my, you know, uh, you know, we have a plan and, and our higher power has a plan, whatever your higher power is. And in my case, um, my plan was I'm going to graduate college with a writing degree and I'm going to become this amazing writer and I'm going to become a full-time writer. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach uh, martial arts part-time, um, whether it's at a commercial studio or whether it's out of a garage or something I didn't know but my goal was I want to be a full-time writer I want to be a part-time martial arts instructor well God's plan was different for me uh and and it it it, it basically went the other way uh I became a full-time martial arts instructor and a part-time writer um I will say that um I think it, 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 I think that it was the right thing. I mean, I, am hoping that in, in the future, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, I, I'm always going to teach. I'm always going to teach martial arts, uh, even as long as I can walk or whatever and talk, uh, I'm going to teach martial arts, but I want to, I, I really want to focus a lot more on my writing on top of doing that. But anyway, um, you know, for me helping people changing people's lives in any way I can is, is something that's extremely important. And I feel that, you know, you know, as a Christian, that that, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, you're supposed to be a a light in everybody's darkness, basically. Um, No matter how bad of a day somebody has, or how bad of a, of a situation someone's going through, if you can do anything to help them at all, it means a lot, you know, it's like, uh, I mean, it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, just a little tiny, tiny thing can mean a lot, you know, like in my mind I can say, well, this, this doesn't seem like much, but I don't know what that person has been through throughout the day or throughout whatever. Right. So it's like, uh, I, you know, um it it it's like um it could be like a little something as small as a grain of salt and and i think that okay it's a grain of salt it's not going to mean much because you know one of the things one of the other things i like to do is i like to cook i mean i'm no bobby flay by any means but i like to cook and and uh and it's one of those things where you can't put one grain of salt. In in whatever you're cooking, like salt is the the motherhood of what you cook. I mean, you need to have a good amount of salt on a lot of stuff. And uh, you know, the professional chefs will tell you. I watch the damn, uh, <laughs> I watch the uh, cooking channel, Food Channel, all the time, and they're always saying uh, you need more salt, more salt, more salt, more salt. So if I only put one grain of salt in there in a, in a meal, it's not gonna it's gonna be bland. It's not gonna taste great. But if you put one grain of salt you know, in somebody's life, uh, that's a different story. You know, even a smile, maybe somebody has somebody's had a horrible day and you just look at them right in the eyes and you smile at them. And next thing you know, it just changes their mood, you know? So something simple like that. But, um, but as far as like, I knew I always, uh, you know, uh, teaching just comes naturally to me. Uh, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the greatest Kenpo teacher in the world or the greatest teacher in the world. But I just I have passion for helping people, and um, I've helped many people, and I'm proud of that. Uh, just in my own just in my own studio, I have taught over well over a thousand people. In my let me think, I started teaching in '98, so what are we looking at 2000. We're looking at about 22 years, 23 years of teaching. So I've, I've probably taught a little over a thousand people just in my school. And then if you look at all the seminars I've taught over the last, oh geez, probably 15 years all around the world, not just in, uh, not just in uh, the United States, but I I can't even tell you how many people that have taken a lesson under me. Um, And uh, I, there's, it's just amazing. I mean, it's amazing how, how, uh, You know, you know, how how you can help so many people in so many different ways without even knowing it. And, uh, you know, I I, even to this day, you get people, you know, people, most people don't stick around forever. You know, you'll get the kids that start when they're four and they're with you until they're 10. Or you'll get the kids that start with you when they're eight and they're with you until they're 15. You get the kids that start when they're 12, they're with you until they're 20 and they go, or, or 19 or 20 and they go away to college or whatever and so on and so forth. And then the next thing you know, you see them 10 years later and they come back and they tell you how, how much they appreciate what you did for them and they tell you what they learned from you. And and that's what's really cool. Um, in fact, I had, to, just to give you a quick story, I had this uh, this kid that started with me. I say kid, he was probably... 18 and he took private boxing lessons from me because we already mentioned that i was an amateur boxer and i teach i avidly teach boxing but i mostly teach private lessons i you know i i did have a boxing program for a while but um i prefer to teach one-on-one boxing lessons well this kid came in at 18 years old right before he was going to college and he started taking two private lessons with me a week and we're talking, this kid, he starts boxing, he starts boxing and he's by, and he was doing a damn good job. And he was a very good athlete. He played football and he did all this stuff. He ends up becoming a pro football player. Uh, So he trains with me for about two years. He goes to college. In college, he played football. He played football for his university. He then becomes a pro football player. Um, and in college he comes back home, you know, he comes back home every now and then. And he, he takes, every time he came home, he took two or three private lessons with me a week. Uh, he was a, he was a kicker, by the way, field goal kicker, um, an extra point kicker and all that. And anyway, so, um, and he was very humble. So he comes back and he starts training with me again and blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, he becomes a a professional football player. And, um, so then he does, you know, he he's playing uh, pro ball. Uh, in it, it was it started off in the arena league, I think it was some kind of arena league, arena ball, semi pro slash pro. And then he tries out for the Buffalo Bills, and uh, and then he's he goes to um, uh, he moves he moves out of town, comes back, starts training with me again, and then he he got signed. Uh, in Australia for basically the Australian NFL, uh, to be, to be a kicker for, uh, for one of their Australian teams. And then he does that comes back and, uh, and then he joins the army, you know, I mean, I mean, whole, whole story about this kid. The only reason I'm telling you this is because I haven't seen him in three and a half years. And then he calls me up, uh, A week ago and says hey i'm coming home for a week i want to train with you again so he comes home and he trains with me for he he trained twice this week uh in, in private boxing lessons again and uh and you know just you know he told me many times even when he was a pro football kicker he said you know you really helped me to become the person i am today um and and you helped me throughout my training and my discipline and and uh, to to stick forward with it because one thing i can tell you one of the things i told him when he was trying to become a pro football player and i'm not a football player you know i i played one year of football that was when i was in 7th grade and i was a little puke so um i i just it wasn't i love football but it wasn't my thing so i told him i said listen uh you need to go after that dream man i said you're good enough this kid in in high school this kid was kicking 60 yard field goals in oh, high school wow yes and and i told him listen man i don't care what anybody tells you do not stop fighting to become a pro because you are damn good enough and i'm telling you you can do it trust me on this you can do it. And I, I basically, every time I had, a, 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 I had a, a private lesson with him, I encouraged him. You need to go, go, go. And when he finally became a pro, he sent me a Facebook message, awesome Facebook message, set, telling me how much he appreciated me, how much he learned from me and how i encouraged him to become a pro football player and, if, and and i'm one of the people that if i if i wouldn't have encouraged him every time he was there he might have gave up on his dream you know and uh so that's one story of many that i could probably share but um th- that's the one that's one of the ones that pops out in my mind you know what i mean I love it. and of course i've got several i've got several stories that i could tell you about uh uh kids that you know came in and then they got bullied and 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 they they knew exactly what to do because of the training and and then the bullies uh, most of it was verbal but but the, they knew how to handle the situation with confidence versus you know letting the bully control them and then uh and then of course it all worked out and then there I did have the the situations where kids uh were physically bullied and then the kids Took them out you know um properly i don't mean they beat the hell out of them but they they took them out properly and um one of them that i can remember uh you know i you know in Kempo we teach it's not just punch kicks elbows knees sweeps buckles you know all that stuff but we also teach you know uh different locks i mean we have some wrist locks we have some uh different different types of locks and I teach come along holds. We at least that's I call them come along holds. You know they can. Some people call them wrist flexes and whatever. Um, There's other names for them, but I I teach those the inward and outward come alongs. Well, this one kid came in, and he he trained with me. You know he he was he came when he was like seven, and about nine when he was here for about two years, he's about nine years old, and he and this bully w- wouldn't leave him alone. And, and of course I, 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 I took him through the steps, you know, tell the bully to back off, look him in the eyes, tell him to knock it off. You can't, you're not allowed to do this. Leave me alone, blah, blah, blah. And the bully actually physically at one point physically like grabbed him, And then this kid put him in a come along hold, you know, an inward come along hold. And he actually broke the kid's wrist. And, and, and the kid starts crying and had to go to the hospital and got, you know, got his, uh, got a cast on and everybody's all pissed off. And, and except for obviously my students, parents, they were all proud. And, and, uh, and I told these people, I said, listen, that kid wouldn't leave him alone. He gave him several, several, several warnings. Leave me alone. Stop bullying me, blah, blah, blah. And then the kid finally physically attacked him and my student never hit him. I said, he never hit you. He never hit your son. He put him in a come-along hole. It's not his fault the kid's wrist broke, you know? And so it turned out to be a a situation where one little move that I taught this nine-year-old kid, he actually put into use. And actually, I mean, I I wish he didn't break the kid's wrist. I I mean, I'm not proud of that, but it happened. And uh, But it is what it is, you know?
0: And likely hasn't been bullied since by that kid.
1: No, he hasn't. Nope. And and now the kids like now this kid that was nine is now 16. Um, <laughs> but but back then, it's like that was the first physical time this my nine year old uh, student. That was the first time he ever had to get physical with anybody in his life. And all it was was a come along hold. But he didn't understand, like, you know, the level of, you know, pressure you should put.
0: Yeah, I'm sure adrenaline played into it, all that stuff too.
1: Yeah, exactly. So he ended up breaking the kid's wrist. Versus, don't go so hard and just take him down, you know. But but whatever, it would have never happened had that kid never laid hands on him. So, um, but then you got those situations, you know. And uh, but anyway, I mean, I could tell you more than that, but uh, I think you get the picture as far as that. That's a couple of ideas for you. I love it.
0: All right, so let's move towards uh segment three, which is you know first part of segment three is I want to give you the opportunity. I know we've talked about uh, plugging a bunch of stuff that's on Amazon, but I want to give you the uh, give you the mic back here. And so, if anybody's looking to get a hold of you for whatever reason, be it for your books, be it for you know seminar instruction, whatnot, where's your stuff at? How do they get a hold of you?
1: Okay, well, uh for me, that you, you there's sev- several things obviously, but. Um, what works best for me are a couple things. Number one, um, just right on Facebook, you know, if, and if you're not friends with me, feel free to add me um, uh, on Facebook. For those of you who are listening, feel free to add me. I'm just under Michael Miller, pretty simple. Um, and then uh, uh, you can just directly message me on there. Or if you want to email me, my email is millhouse 23 at hotmail.com, which is just M-I-L-L-H-O-U-S-E. 23, uh, at hotmail.com, 23, two and three, obviously. Um, And then uh, I have a website, michaelmillerwriter.com, which if you wanted to check out that, not a big deal there, but michaelmillerwriter.com. All my books are on Amazon. Like I said, I have six books at the moment. They're all on Amazon, but to plug the, the ones that are most important, in my view, Kempo Perspectives, The Elvis Experience, and Journeying Beyond the Mountaintop. Those are the three. If, you, if you've if you never read any of my books, those are the three to invest in, um, in my opinion, because they're I think they're my three best. Uh, and, I, and like I said, I co-authored the last two I mentioned, The Elvis Experience and Journeying Beyond the Mountaintop, but they're both great books but if you're a kempo i should mention if you're a kempo person especially american kempo kempo perspectives is what you want if you're not in american kempo i strongly su- suggest don't don't worry about it you know don't you don't need to get the book because the book is specifically about american kempo so unless you want to learn about american kempo you can get it but i don't that's the deal and then uh, martial intellect was the book of uh articles I have I do suggest that one just because I have a lot of articles in there in fact I have a specific article it's even right on the right on the I put it on the cover but it's it's a specific article where I I did an exclusive interview with uh, UFC Hall of Famer Dan the Beast Severn I did a uh, just for that book I called him up and did a, a beautiful interview and he talks about because he fought in the beginning UFCs. He wasn't in UFC one, but he was in like two, three, four, something like that. Yep. He was in like three of them. And and uh, so I called him up and 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 uh, we 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 uh well actually I I messaged him on Facebook first. And then he's and I said hey I'm doing this book blah blah blah. W- would you be interested in an inter- interview blah blah blah? And he was a very nice guy. He immediately messaged me back and said, yeah, here's my phone number. Give me a call. I gave him a call at the time he you know, specifically asked to call him. And I gave him a call and we had this awesome, it was probably a two hour interview. And um, that interview is in the book, Martial Intellect, and it's it's the only place you'll find the interview. And he talks about the beginning UFCs, like what really happened and what was going on and how he got in and blah, blah, blah. So it's pretty cool. Um, you it, know, it's worth buying the book just for that interview and, and you get a hell of a lot more than that. And the book's only like, I don't know, I think it's like 14 bucks or something, but anyway. Um, so those were my, my main, my main deals. Um, and like I said, MichaelMillerWriter.com, but, but I would, I would suggest just if you want to buy the books, just go to Amazon. That's the easiest way to do it. Uh, if you wanted a, uh, by chance you wanted a autographed copy of any of these books, then let me know, uh, on Facebook or email and, and, uh, we'll go from there. But, um, you know, uh, just let me know as far as that goes for, for anybody. And, uh, and like I said, I'm working on two more books at the moment. I got eight more in the pipeline after that. Uh, I don't want to talk about those right now because they won't be out for a while. So we'll just kind of bypass that. But but uh, Doreen DiRienzo's book, um, I, I'm Not Too Fat to Dance, that will be coming out within the next six months, I'd say. And then my book, Doorman, um, The Art and Science of Bouncing, uh, where, uh, by the way, uh, most of you martial artists would know don the dragon wilson you know one of the best kickboxers who ever lived acted in several movies he wrote the foreword for me for the book um so be on, be on the lookout for that that'll be out within the next four months i'd say but that's pretty much where we're at at this point
0: i love it so everybody's got the contact information we got the preview of coming attractions and we know where to find them so now, knowing that this podcast is currently heard in about thirty-seven countries, more to come. We just got added onto four new major podcast platforms here in the last two weeks. What message do you want all of our listeners out there to get from Michael Miller to the world?
1: Okay, um, for honestly, uh, for me, you know, just go with go with your passion, whatever it is in life. Listen to your gut, listen to your instincts. Do whatever you feel is the best for you. And if you're a martial artist, always be a student. Even if you are a teacher, always be a student. And, and lastly, one of the things I forgot to say during that segment, um, when we were talking about the student versus the teacher, even if you aren't a teacher and you're just a student, please understand that you are a teacher because there's always somebody watching you. There's always somebody looking up to you. If you are an older brother, or an older sister, or if you are an uncle, or you are an aunt, or you are a mother, or you are a father, or if you're a best friend with somebody, or you've got friends, or whatever it is, you are a teacher, whether you like it or not, because people are gonna be watching everything you do. So please, Do the best you can do, be the best you can be, so that you can be a good service to the people who are looking up to you. Because whether you like it or not, you are a role model, and you always will be. So do the best you can. Great stuff, sir. I had a blast talking with
0: Michael and learning about his career to date in the martial arts. He's been blessed to be around some amazing instructors and has a fantastic teaching pedigree himself. I'm going to make it a point to pick up a copy of his books. Probably one of my favorite parts of doing this show is getting to hear about things I didn't know about and finding new things to absorb into my life and increasing my own knowledge base. I firmly believe knowledge has no value unless it's shared, and this platform seems to resonate and connect with a lot of people around the globe, so we're going to keep these going. Episode 5 of Season 2 is in the books, folks. Season 1 is still available at more major podcast platforms, with new platforms added again. If you like what you're hearing, give us a rating on whatever platform of choice you're listening on. We greatly appreciate the feedback. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Audible, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Alexa, which is Amazon's Echo speakers, Stitcher, TuneIn, Castbox, Bullhorn, the podcast app, and of course our host Podbean as well. Find us at www.artistsofmotion.com. Our Facebook page is Artist of Motion. Twitter and Facebook at AOM Podcast. Email pod at artistemotion.com if you're interested in appearing or you'd like to recommend us a guest. We're open to anyone of any style, any lineage. It's all good. That's all for this week. I'm Steve Zelazowski. Catch you next time on the
1: Artist Emotion Podcast.